I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. cursing psalms, the psalms that, that, that blame God and call out to God and, and say, why God could you have done this to me and curse my enemies? We've moved into the psalms of thanksgiving and praise as we did last week, and now we are at the psalm of lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our ancestors trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and not human, scorned by others, and despised by the people. All who seek me mock at me, they make mouths at they, they make mouths at me, they shake their heads, commit your cause to the Lord. Let them deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls encircle me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue, you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs are all around me, a company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and my feet have shriveled. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So... Our leadership team, not just this church, not just you all, but our leadership team has also been sharing our faith um, stories with one another in our meetings. We have been getting more intimate than ever. And um, one of the people in our, on our leadership team said something that I found pretty um, profound at, our, at one of our meetings um, over the last few months. He said this. He said that it seems as if people are okay with um, illness, with Um, with impending death. It seems like people are okay with sharing their fears when it comes in their prayers, when it comes to those who are loved ones who are are ill. Um, But when it comes to those deeper, painful things, when it comes to those places where maybe sin has crept in um, and has kind of destroyed a relationship, or when it comes to those places where pain has existed long, long after a funeral has happened and someone is still grieving deep inside themselves and no one seems to understand anymore. Those are the places where we just don't know what to do with it. And I thought, I actually, when I first heard him say that, I thought, I think that's really perceptive because when, we, when it's time for us to offer prayers in a space like this, if we were to offer our prayers aloud before God, we're normally really good at sharing who in our life is currently ill, um, who, is, um, who, who, who just had a mother die, um, and we're, we're good at sharing those things, but, but there's a whole level of pain that I don't think we know even how to begin to address. If the statistics are right, about eight to ten people sitting in this room right now are struggling with depression. The CDC says that one in 20 Americans struggles with major depression, and then three others in a group of 20 at some point in their life have struggled with what you call dysthymia, which is this version of mild depression. Four in 20. Four in 20. So if we were to say that there's about 18 to 20 of you on either side right now, about 8 to 10 of us in here probably have struggled with depression or are right now. The CDC describes depression as someone who has feelings of sadness or anxiety that lasts for weeks at a time. He or she may also experience feelings of hopelessness, pessimism, feelings of guilt, worthlessness, helplessness, irritability, restlessness, loss of interest in activities or hobbies that once seemed pleasurable to you, fatigue, increased, um, decreased energy, difficulty concentrating, remembering details, or even um, being able to make decisions, ins- ins- uh, insomnia, early morning restlessness, or excessive sleeping as another sign of it, overeating or loss of appetite, 
Um, and of course, it's the sliding scale, right? Uh, the more these characteristics come up in, the in your life, the, perhaps the more depressed you might be. Uh, the more hammered the normal activities of life are, the more weighed down you may be with a diagnosis of depression. Um, if your life habits have changed drastically, if you're eating or sleeping or your moods have become cynical or sad or weighed down or angry or, or irritable, these, these might be signs of depression. Women are twice as likely to be depressed as men are. The elderly are three times more likely to be depressed than their younger counterparts are. At least eight to 10 people here this morning, if the odds are right, are struggling with depression in some way. Now there's this, this odd thing in our society. There's this stigma that goes along with depression that keeps people from seeking help for it, that keeps people bound up and unable to go find relief. And that kind of makes sense. If you think about what my friend at leadership team meeting said, it kind of reflects the fact that we are not, there's a stigma. And that stigma just kind of comes right into our prayer life too. So that if there is anything, any bit of pain that we don't fully understand that doesn't directly have to do with someone maybe being ill, someone losing a job, or someone dying, we don't know what to do with it. Only 29% of people struggling with depression ever seek help. Get this, only 39% of those people struggling with major depression ever seek help. 39%. Imagine if only 39% of people who had cancer sought help. It is a, it, it's this, this strange phenomenon based in this stigma we, we don't really understand. This level of pain is pandemic, and yet it is this silent kind of pain. It carries a stigma like there's something wrong with your personality. If you might bear the weight of this in any way at all, it's tough to be depressed in church. The church is a hard place to be when you're depressed. It, it's, it's maybe the place that you long to be the most and the hardest place to show up because people say stupid things when you're at church. If you only prayed a little bit more or this is just maybe some deep residing unconfessed sin. If you just confessed your sins, then God will, you know, lift this weight off of you perhaps. They'll They'll say things like, well, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, did you read the Bible? Wasn't God's son killed? That, that's, that seems like way, way more than we could ever handle. Not to mention the interior toll that depression takes on your faith. It's hard to just keep showing up week after week after week when you feel like you're not being changed at all and all these people around you seem to be experiencing something that I don't seem to be experiencing God must not love me like God loves them. Maybe, there is, maybe there's no God at all. And, and so people who are depressed, as the rising toll, as the depression rises in our society, so does the, it, the amount of people coming to church decrease. It's hard to be here. It's really hard. And pastors like me, we stand up and talk about love and joy and peace. And these are things that you're supposed to find in God. And it's been years since these people have felt love and joy and peace. And so if God is supposed to be in that, then God must not be anywhere near me. And so they stay away. Depression, both in our culture and even in the church, is just this kind of weight that most of us carry in silence. And it's like, we're, it's like you're at a party on a beach and 
and everyone else is having the time of their lives around you, and you're just kind of walking along the surf, dragging this chain. It's just kind of wrapped around your neck, and it is as link after link after link gets added, it just gets heavier, and it gets heavier, and it is this crippling spirit, and we don't understand it. Which is why walking through Jesus' ministry toward the cross throughout the season of Lent is so important for us. Only a few weeks before Jesus enters Jerusalem with palm branches waving, only a few weeks before those palms become the dust at the base of the cross for Jesus, Jesus meets a crippled woman. This woman who is described as crippled, she's bent over, the gospel says. She can barely walk. She's, she's just shuffling her feet as if this chain is kind of wrapped around her and link after link is being added, and, and she, she doesn't see Jesus. All she can see is the dirt where her eyes are looking. It's easy for us to think that this is a story of physical healing. Luke's gospel is replete with stories of healing, and, and it's, it's easy for us to think this is just another miraculous thing that Jesus does, but Luke is crystal clear about what this is especially in the Greek, that this woman has a pneumasthemia, a crippling spirit. This is not a physical ailment that this woman has, but she's been bent over. Her spirit is broken in half. Like the psalmist this morning, this woman has cried out to God, why, God, have you forsaken me? Do you hear my cries of anguish? I cry out day and night, but I have no rest All who see me don't understand me. They say, if only you trusted the Lord, let him, the Lord, rescue you. As the psalmist says, my heart, though, is turning to wax. My mouth is all dried up from this. My bones are on display, and it's like no one still sees me. God, come quickly to my help. Do not forsake me, God. And so she shuffles her way past Jesus, and Jesus sees her walks over to her, lays hands on her, prays for her, and she straightens up. And it's like this blanket, this weight has been lifted off her shoulders, and for the first time she can see again. She can see what's around her. She can breathe again. And we watch as the drama unfolds, and she begins to stand up straight, and and now there's a whole lot we don't know about this woman, right? We have no idea what broke her spirit. Did she lose a child? Or, or a, a spouse? Does, does she feel trapped like the weight of her family is weighing down on her, like it's her responsibility to do everything and, and she's now suffocated by the pressure of life? Has, has she had this long encounter with illness, maybe her own or maybe something in society in her life and she has a heart the size of the world that just takes it all in and it consumes her body? Or maybe her depression is not situational at all. Maybe it's physiological. Maybe her genetics that were passed on to her were bent towards depression all along from the beginning. We have no idea what this woman's story is. What we do know is what this woman with this pneumasthemia, this crippling spirit, we do know that she is face down, bent by life, and Jesus sees her. Did you hear that? Jesus sees her. She doesn't see Jesus. Jesus sees her, and Jesus comes near, and Jesus touches her and lifts her from her depression and leads her to new life. 
This scene is not supposed to tell us everything. This scene has been used by many, many a person to explain physical healing at a place that is incredibly, incredibly damaging to people in the church. As if if you just have Jesus touch you, Jesus will heal you. This is not a scene about how God heals. This is a scene revealing God's will. Do you hear that? This is not a scene about how God heals. This is a scene revealing God's will. God's will is that depression, that illness, that crippling spirits be removed, that they be no more. But to find out how God does that, we cannot look at the scripture. One of the reoccurring themes in scripture that describes who we are as people and how God works in us. There's a metaphor in scripture that, that is used over and over again by the psalmist and other Old Testament poets. It is to say that we are clay. We're not rocks, hard and brittle and unchanging. We're not water that is formless and we go with the flow. God says that we are clay which means we are moldable and malleable. Life has a way of bending us, bending our spirits, bending our bodies. We're clay. Like the psalmist, the prophet Jeremiah experiences God's molding on his life. And Jeremiah, go, the, God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. I've got something I want to show you there. So instead of going to church, Instead of going to synagogue, places where people might tell him God's going to heal you or God's not going to give you more than you can handle. Instead of going to church or the synagogue, Jeremiah goes to a potter's house. And there he sees a potter sitting with this lump of bent, spoiled clay. It's broken. It's useless. Everyone else thinks it's useless. Instead of throwing the clay out, though, The potter fires up the wheel and he starts whistling this tune and he starts shaping this clay and remolding it and remaking it as the prophet stands there and watches the word of the Lord comes to him. This, Jeremiah, is how I work. This is how I work with you. This is my loving work with my people, always working, always shaping, always molding you towards life. This is a picture of how God heals. This is what God's healing looks like. God's the potter, slowly, surely, tenderly, not wasting any piece of your brokenness, molding us back to life. We see the crippled woman being healed, and we think it's supposed to be instantaneous, that that if you just pray the right prayer, confess the right sin, you'll be healed, right? Right? It's not, a, it's not a story of how, it's a story of what. How is in Jeremiah your clay? I'm your potter, and I am gradually molding you and offering healing throughout all of your life. God is that force, that source that never gives up on us and is always shaping us back towards life because God knows that there's enough that bends us towards death. It's almost a miracle that the other 80% of us are not depressed in our society. There is enough in our society and our day-to-day lives that just bends us towards depression and pessimism and cynicism. Whether it's genetics or situational, there's enough to do it to all of us. 
It's almost impossible to go through life and not get bent towards despair. Now, Jesus, in this story, calls these forces satanic. Satan is not Al Pacino with demons at his disposal. Satan is less than a character and more of this force. The the word Satan, meaning accuser, it is everything in your mind, everything in your in your head that says that that you're not good enough, that you're useless, that this must be my fault, that I have done something to deserve this, that I have somehow ended up in this place where I cannot feel joy and peace and, and love like everyone else here feels, and that this is me. Satan is that distinct voice of accusation that says that my situation, this place, right now, my deepest lament, my crying out to God is somehow, somehow my fault. These are the satanic whispers that incessantly bounce around the souls of the depressed and it shapes you and it bends you down. And Jesus says in unequivocal terms, that is not God. God is that voice that leads to life, that that bends us back to wholeness. God is that shaping force that shapes us, molds us back to life. God is hell-bent on reshaping us back to what God created us to be. God the potter who never gives up on us. God the potter shows up in all kinds of ways too, like, like worship here, through friends who show up and remind you who you are, through loved ones who walk with us, through the deepest days of our despair, despite our anger and our bitterness that just keep loving the hell out of us. God the potter is that kind of working, shaping, molding, because we are malleable and we can so easily be bent towards death. If any of you, if any of you here today are struggling in silence, if you feel like you're struggling in silence, first of all, I say, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. If you are struggling in silence, if you feel like nobody can understand possibly where you are right now, I'm here. But it helps when we are able to hear the stories of others who have had their own journey through despair and have been able to find hope. It helps when we, be able to, we can hear the stories of others who um, can sense God molding them even if they don't know what's up at the end of this thing. And so as we talk about faith in the first person, as we talk about what it means to experience faith in the first person, how we talk about the way God is molding us is the best way we do that. And so I would like to invite up Mike and Barbara and invite them to tell their story this morning of how God the potter has been molding them in the midst of their own pain. And yeah, there's one, one mic you all can share. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, I'm Mike, obviously. This is Barbara. Um, thank you, Michelle, for letting us talk. And it's tough. <laughs> um, we started in southeast Kansas as kids growing up there. Um, she went to the Methodist Church downtown, the big one. I went to a smaller one out north of towns. My brother still goes there. God love him. Um, so we had a, a good faith base through that method. Um, and we didn't start out to be gypsies. It wound up that way. We moved to Des Moines. We found a uh, Methodist church there. Really great. Had a good time. The kids with youth group, uh, we were young adults. And Barb did, you did the bu- vacation Bibles uh, school. 
Uh, so we had, had a really, really, really interesting time there. Um, then we moved to Orange City, Iowa, and I don't know if anybody knows about the great state of Iowa in the northwest corner of Iowa where it gets cold, um, <laughs> is the, the American Reformed Churches there, the Robert Schuler, his churches. So we, we went to the American Reformed Church, and Barb actually got there before I did, so a church down the street, the American Reformed Church, and so uh, she took the kids, went to church, and sat in the back row, no Methodist church in town. So she sat in the back row just to make sure they didn't have snakes on the stage or anything like that. And uh, she was very surprised. It was very Methodist-like. So we said, well, we think we can, we can do that. So we, we enjoyed that. Uh, I became a deacon of the church. Uh, we were youth group and young adults, and the kids had a good time uh, with the youth minister. Uh, unfortunately, we left Orange City, back to Des Moines, stayed with the American Reformed Church, um, became a deacon in that church, and uh, the, the minister that was there, very, very nice minister, he was getting ready to retire. Um, so the deacons and elders, it was almost like the Spanish Inquisition, uh, decided to meet at this one fellow's house and try to talk George out of retiring. So everybody laid out, laid out why George should retire until it came to my turn. And I said, George, great, you've done good. Go enjoy life. And I became the enemy of the rest of them. <laughs> so, so, but we've, we've always had a, a good uh, a base of faith. Um, when we came out here, we didn't roam for 40 years like Moses did. We, about 20, I think, until we uh, saw a flyer from Michelle in this church and stopped by Knowles. And so that's kind of what led us here. And, and now for the real reason, and I'll let you... But I will say that when we walked in the door, we just almost felt like we'd been coming here for years. We just felt this um, immense comfort, I think. Uh, and not only with, with the church and the concept, but all of the outreach and the, and the percentage of active, active people per capita uh, in this church is more than I've ever seen anywhere. It's, it's always been like we did our little corner and somebody else did their little corner. Um, so we came... To, uh, we, we found, uh, met the church at Knolls, like Mike said, it was a year ago, Christmas. And uh, we got a flyer about Christmas carols and pictures and Santa Claus. And we thought, oh, that'd be kind of fun to do. And he was trying to get me out of the house because we started to, I don't wear hats by choice. I don't wear anything more than a ba an occasional bas uh, baseball hat. Uh, but I've become quite a hat person in the last uh, 14 months or so. Um, but it was, it, you could kind of feel yourself sinking and asking and what's going on. And this, uh, the last, the couple of months before, I'm so, I know I'm rambling. I have this list of notes, but it, they're just not working right now. Um, we, uh, I'd had some, some symptoms and something was going on and went to do tests and all these things. And the, and the, the man doing the CT scans said, well, if there's nothing wrong, you'll hear from your doctor in a few days. And if there is something going on, which I think he was trying to prepare me for, he said, you'll hear from, from the doctor today probably. I worked late that night, and it was after 5.30 or quarter of 6 or so, and I thought I was home free. I thought, ha, no problem. And then th that damn cell phone rang. And I thought, well, this can't be good. I looked down and saw this, the name. It was my doctor. And between the time that I had the CAT scan and she made the phone call to me, she had already set me up with an oncologist on Monday and done all this homework and research. And, but, but of course, she couldn't really tell me what I was going to be hearing on Monday. We got to the oncologist's office on Monday, and he said, well, do you know why you're here? And I said, well, 
I'm in an oncologist office, <laughs> so it can't be really good news right now. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't good news. Plus, we had to go from Friday to Monday, so you know, Monday to Tuesday would be okay. But now we had this elephant in the room the entire weekend, and it was just hard to get anything else uh, done. Um, but on the other hand, uh, we might have not come to this church. We might have not come and you know met you all. We might have not gotten out of the house that. Saturday or Sunday or whatever it was that we were at the Christmas caroling. And uh, we might have not learned a lot about people and caring and what they were doing for us and how many friends we had around the country. Um, we might not have been so thankful that we lived where we do because in this metropolitan area, like a lot of other metropolitan areas, we've got a lot of doctors who know what they're doing. And we think back to what if this had all happened as much as we love our hometown in southeast Kansas, what if it was like the only ovarian cancer they treated in the last three years, rather than somebody who's trained in Johns Hopkins and knows exactly what they're doing? And what if we had been somewhere else and ignored something and not gone to the... So uh, we, we still have this elephant in the room, and it's going to be with us the rest of, the rest of my life. Um, there would be one kind of treatment or the other. S some will take the hair and when we stop doing that, and some will cause another symptom and my hair will grow back, something else will be wrong, but I've become quite a hat person. I kind of like to go on the magazine and say, oh, I like that color, that's kind of fun. Um, but mostly I think we're just thankful for each other, of course, and for finding a church again, and for just so many immense things that wouldn't have happened had we not had the, the elephant in the room, the challenge. That's good. We, and the question is, Always, why us? Why her? Why me? And yeah, that there's no way to get around it. You're going to ask that question, but we know also we give thanks to God that He He's the guy that built that researcher, that doctor, that surgeon that invented the medicines that keeps things going. So you know, there's a lot of things to be thankful for, even when you don't have a lot of things to be thankful yeah. for. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mike and Barbara. Would you all um, uh, go to God in prayer with me as we um, will sing, we'll sing the song after we pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your, the way you mold us. You take what is just a lump and you mold us into the people you'd have us be. We, we thank you that you never intend for us, never want for us anything that hurts us. We confess the ways we have tried to make sense of the suffering in our world by, um, by expecting you to, to do a, a one-time um, healing it all, taking it all away, and, and not realizing how you've proven yourself over time to, to mold us into, into wholeness, as the, you want us to be whole people, mind, body, soul, spirit. We confess the way we have used the words of the accuser to make sense of suffering as well. God, it is so easy to ask, why why me? Like the psalmist, we turn towards praise. We say, you know, but you, God, are holy. That's what we know. And people have been praising you from the beginning of time. And you have proven to be a deliverer from the beginning of time in ways we can't possibly understand or ever fully know. And so we trust you. We join in that prayer that you have taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Christ, I'm 